are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. Difficult to see. Always in motion is the future. Always in motion is the future. The future. Hey, where's my jet? Hello comrades and welcome to Where's My Jetpack, a politics and pop culture podcast with sci-fi and socialist leanings. I'm Annie White and we're on the line to my exceptionally lovely co-host Derek Johnson. Thank you Annie uh, for our first episode of 2020. God we're in the future now. Uh, we're doing a pop culture retrospective focusing on the Disney Star Wars reboot from The Force Awakens onward. And this is a franchise full of jetpacks. So this is very apropos to our show. And stormtroopers fly now. Yes, they fly now. But before all that, we've got some wrecks. So I'm going to recommend episode five of Margaret Killjoy's podcast, We Will Remember Freedom. Now, I'm biased because the short story in the episode is read by my lovely co-host Derek Johnson in his dulcet American tones. He's reading the fantasy story Ogres of East Africa by Sophia Samata. So, you know, we obviously we do a lot of sci-fi and fantasy coverage in this podcast and maybe a bit too much of it is Hollywood sci-fi and fantasy. So this is an example of fantasy from elsewhere in the world. And you can find that at Spotify uh, or at uh, wewillrememberfreedom.com. So Derek, what's your rec this month? Well, in keeping with a topic brought up by the Disney sequels, I want to rec some YouTube videos on queer baiting. There are a series of great ones by Rowan Ellis and several by Council of Geeks and Star Wars Origins at www.moongadget.com backslash origins. And that is a really good website about all the different influences visually, musically, story-wise, mythologically on the Star Wars uh, trilogy. Spoiler warning for all Star Wars movies and extended media. For our pop culture retrospective this month, we're reviewing the post-Disney Star Wars universe now that the sequel trilogy is over. To quote the honest trailer for Last Jedi, a series about balance and non-attachment will be worshipped, hated on, and obsessed over until it's not even fun to talk about anymore. And I think that really sums up Star Wars in this era. Yep, calling ourselves out here. The first thing we must discuss to understand the rest is how did we get here? As written about in the Bloomberg article, George Lucas can't give his $1.5 billion museum away by Devin Leonard, which I suggest is a really funny article. Uh, discussing why he sold Lucasfilm to Walt Disney for $4.5 billion, 
Lucas, who was then 68, said he was tired of critics and fans who believed he'd mishandled the Star Wars saga over the years, especially a second trilogy known as the prequels, which were scorned for lacking charm and thrills. Quote, I'll be kind of happy to leave a lot of that criticism and personal attacks behind, said Lucas. I didn't sign up to be a politician. Now, my observation is the 2010 mockumentary, The People vs. George Lucas, directed by Swiss director Alexander O. Philippe, is likely one of the final straws to break the camel's back, to be honest. Uh, it explores the issues of filmmaking and fanaticism, as we'll be getting into. Pertaining to the Star Wars franchise and its creator, George Lucas. It combines filmmaker and celebrity interviews with fan films. And the other side of the argument, though, George Lucas only appears in archival footage and wasn't interviewed himself. The film discusses the extent to which the Star Wars franchise is an artistic creation of Lucas's and subject to his vision versus a social phenomenon that belongs to the general public of fans and their participatory remix culture. The case was made that fans knew better for Star Wars than its own creator, and they owned it because of the impact it had on all culture, bringing up interesting artistic rights and intellectual property questions. Uh, I, I, for one, don't believe in intellectual property any more than any other so-called property rights, but when does something an artist creates become the commons, and how should artists be remunerated? Should their kids get an estate like the Tolkien's? Yeah, the argument has been made that when Lucas released the special editions, uh, he shouldn't have removed the originals from the public sphere. And I actually agree with that. Where I have more trouble is the idea that fans should determine what creators are allowed to do. Uh, if something's released into the public sphere, it shouldn't be pulled unless there's a really good reason. But in terms of creating new works, creators should have as much freedom as possible, basically, whether it's from corporate supervision or entitled fans. I'd also defend the right of fans to make transformative works. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that, too. And uh, a sequel tackling Disney's stewardship is in the works. Mark Hamill uh, is quoted stating uh, during an interview that he felt that the documentary is biased against Lucas and the prequels, and that uh, he could not believe the backlash that they received. Now, for the Blu-ray release, uh, Philippe appeared on a two-part episode of the Half in the Bag online movie review show uh, produced by Red Letter Media. Philippe is interviewed by Jay Bauman and Mike Stoklasa, a.k.a. serial killer movie reviewer Mr. Plinkett, who has made very long, caustic, funny, and politically incorrect commentaries, ripping the prequels to shreds. Now, the three of them proceed to further rip apart the prequels and shit on Lucas some more. Philippe 
does grant that he'd be fine with all the changes if Lucas would just preserve the originals. And to paraphrase Mr. Plinkett, you may not have noticed all the Lucas bashers are all now demanding the franchise be given back to Lucas after singing praises of Disney getting it away from him for ruining it, but your brain did. We'll start our reviews with Ani reviewing The Force Awakens. Yeah, so I don't have heaps to say about this one compared to the later entries. It's very competent, but a bit soulless. J.J. Abrams has a habit of setting up a universe with some competent hack work, then somebody else takes the reins and does way more interesting things with that universe. So take 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is way better than Cloverfield, Star Trek Beyond, which is way better than the first J.J. Treks, the first two, and in the Star Wars universe here you've got Solo, Rogue One, and The Last Jedi, which are all superior to the Abrams entries being the first and third of the sequel trilogy. The first of the Disneyverse, it's not a bad movie, but it's essentially A New Hope or Star Wars, the original, with a likeable new cast and CGI that wasn't added 20 years later. It's kind of fine and safe. Uh, And this is probably quite a deliberate choice by Disney to relaunch the franchise with something non-risky after the prequels tried something different and kind of failed. Uh, We're going to touch briefly on that as we go, but we're really much more talking about the new movies. And this was more of a soft reboot. Yeah, yeah. So it's in the same universe, but it's also kind of a reboot. Yeah, there was one thing that was new, which is just a little bit more diversity in the casting, and reactionaries couldn't deal with that. Like, it's not really radically, drastically different from the previous ones, but the mere fact of having basically a woman in the lead role and, like, a black guy as another major character caused a complete meltdown. And Rhea's fine. She's essentially Luke in A New Hope. She's the chosen one with prodigious powers despite limited training by both pilots. And, you know, Luke leapt from being a pilot to being both a fighter pilot who could also combine his fighter pilot abilities with incredible force sensitivity and save the day, which honestly I don't really buy. Like, his just being a pilot doesn't necessarily enable him those abilities. So point being, if Ray is a Mary Sue, as the fanboys allege, so is Luke. And I don't have a problem with uh, with Luke. I mean, it's wish fulfillment. Sorry, but to be to be honest, these are kind of kids' movies. Like, I love them, but they kind of are kids' movies. So you're going to have a bit of wish fulfillment and a bit of silliness like that. The, the, the chosen ones. This isn't realism. Uh, or certainly not social realism. Then you had the bizarre theories about white men being cucked by the fairly restrained chemistry by Ray and Finn. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, feel lucky. But if for some reason you want to know what I'm talking about, you could look at the old YouTube video Star Wars A Measured Response by Harris Bomberguy. So he goes into some of the strangest reactions to the first of the sequel trilogy. And Ray and Finn hate was of course the beginning of this intense reactionary fanboy backlash 
first against having women and people of colour in leading roles at all, and then against any kind of challenging storytelling in The Last Jedi. And that was a backlash which unfortunately Abrams and Disney would later give into. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, what about your thoughts on Rogue One and Solo, Derek? So on Rogue One, this project started as the idea one of the people at ILM had for showing how the plans to the first Death Star were obtained by rebel spies. And this would also be, unfortunately, the first among several of these new Star Wars projects to have shakeups behind the scenes. In the pre-production, this movie was directed initially by Gareth Edwards, who directed the excellent Monsters and the first legendary uh, Godzilla. I guess they chickened out because this was made into too much of a war movie proper that just happened to be set in the Star Wars universe with characters that were not tied directly to the main characters we know, and they panicked and they wanted to add as much familiar Star Wars stuff to the movie. And uh, this was always struck me as strange because the whole point of doing these anthology movies as they were originally known until the American audiences did not know what the word anthology meant, was to do stories in miscellaneous, unseen, or diverse parts of the Star Wars universe with characters not connected to the main saga. They panicked and edited it into a more proper, direct prequel to A New Hope with more Easter eggs with the help of a top screenwriter and f- over four editors that came in and came onto this movie and actually shaped it into a very good movie and saved the production. Yeah, although I, I disagree with Red Letter Media's take that Rogue One was just hitting nostalgia buttons with nothing new. Fleshing out the background of the Rebellion without Jedi in lead roles is exactly the sort of thing that Extended Universe is good for. So there's a good core story here, and it's executed generally quite well. In terms of nostalgia, let's be real, Star Wars was always nostalgia, starting with the first movie being a throwback to the serials of Lucas's youth. So Rogue One at least does something interesting with the nostalgia. Yeah, all the Star Wars movies are pastiches, so to criticize them for the nostalgia doesn't hold up. And this turned into a very good movie. Uh, We get to see more of the inner workings and politics of the Rebel Alliance, and this movie had a very interesting and dark look at it. There are some really cool characters in this movie, and Solo, that did not get enough time, unfortunately. Uh, My favorite characters, Alan Tudyk as K2SO, a former Imperial Enforcer droid who was reprogrammed by Cassian Andor to serve the Rebellion, two former Guardians of the Wills, Force-sensitive religion, that's their temple, the Wills, and here, the members of this religious order are played by Donnie Yen 
as a blind warrior, Chirrut Inwe, who believes in the Force, and his longtime companion, Jiang Wen, as Bay's Malbus, who is now a rebel warrior and mercenary. Their comradeship was was very real and touching. You know, I don't know if, if people ship them, whether they're brothers or lovers, comrades at arms, etc. They're soulmates. Who cares how? Yeah, what did you think of Chirrut and Baze? I did refer to them when I was writing about this as the, the Force couple. So I stand by that description, love the Force couple in, in this. And I, yeah, I, I like those characters. They were good. I mean, it didn't hurt, hit you in the feels when they died. I mean, that was... It was good. And they're kind of the odd couple, you know. You got one that still believes, and the other one that's more of a cynic. Yeah, I didn't ship them as hard as I shipped Solo and Han in mm-hmm. uh, both both versions. No, wait, wait, Solo and Han? <laughs> uh, so, sorry, uh, um, Lando, Lando and Han. I don't ship them as hard as I ship them in both iterations. Mm-hmm. In the case of the Force couple... I don't necessarily see them in like sexual terms necessarily, but there's definitely a, a bond there. Whereas I definitely see um, Han and Lando an intense repressed lust. I think is there. I see them in bed with the third person. Yeah, yeah. All right, Ben Mendelsohn was great as Orson Krennic, uh, the director of advanced weapons research for the Imperial military, who was politically outmaneuvered by Tarkin. And I'm a Hannibal fan, so Mads Mikkelsen as Jin's father, Galen Erso, was was a great casting coup. And uh, he was great as the research scientist who sacrificed everything to sabotage the Death Star. Felicity Jones's Jin Erso, I felt, was a weak character because she had to play disillusioned for most of the movie. And then she was more activated and had animated and had more life to her once she got hope and then learned what her father really did. And uh, I think part of it is her acting and I think a lot of it's the rewrites and through editing that just really robs that character and her arc having a little more clarity and having a little more nuance. I think a lot of the characters in this, they kind of forced the arcs together through rewriting and and reshoots and re-editing. Yeah, so I I mean, I love the movie and I think how it fleshes out the universe is great, but I do think some of the character stuff uh, hits some bum notes and she's a little bit boring. I found the romance a little bit boring, and but overall, I mean, I think the way it fleshes out the universe is probably the more interesting aspect of it. Yeah, and a major robbed character would be Saw Gerrera, played by Ghost Dog himself, Forrest Whitaker. Saw Gerrera was introduced in Clone Wars when he was much younger, and he carried over into Rebels, and his par- he and his partisans also have a major appearance in the EA game Jedi Fallen Order, and all but the Clone Wars episode is voiced by Forrest Whitaker. And uh, his group broke off from the main rebels, and they were called the Partisans in this. And uh, you see why. Yeah, he's definitely my favorite. And uh, that's why, you know, something that I thought was missing in the sequels is the politics. And so here you have 
the partisans being spoken of as extremists and terrorists by the seemingly less militant and more political process-minded rebel alliance leadership trying to restore the republic. The rebel alliance perceived Saw's people as making the fight more difficult, and you kind of hear this kind of almost pacifism versus militants in direct action debates that we get in the real world. And I guess this is very similar to those like respectability politics in the good protester, bad protester politics. Uh, where liberal protesters don't like that the black blockers or Antifa are like breaking windows and shit. And it really here in in this movie, it showed a suicidal short-sightedness and a shit analysis of how bad politics had gotten under Palpatine and how power functions as the emperor who had turned the old Republic into the galactic empire and was only keeping the Imperial Senate around as a fig leaf. They, they could not see that. And of course, in the next movie, they they would be dissolved in A New Hope. Yeah, what we see in this is that obviously an armed struggle was required in this situation, and there had to be the split over the course of this movie where the leads uh, split away from the leadership. And then that was what was required to kind of establish really the situation that we see in the original movies. So in other words, the war that is happening in the original movies was only really enabled by this kind of militant breakaway, which their leadership initially didn't support. So we kind of see that really, if they'd been able to set the strategy, they would have, it would have just been self-defeating. That's very good writing. Uh, I'm very impressed by that. And it's just, it's just very smart and very realistic. I, I just could think mulling it over, you know, the very idea that they thought that they were going to somehow have honest Senate hearings on Coruscant, where they were they would present evidence to the Senate and to Palpatine that his own people on his order were developing a planet-killing device, and that the scientists that he ordered to do it was able to get away and testify. I mean, it was just so stupid. The, this vindicates Saw's strategic thinking, even going back to his Rebels episodes when he discovered the Empire committed genocide against the insect Geonosians because they knew too much from building the Death Star since Episode 3. Even at that point, the Rebel Alliance was only willing in the face of, of genocide evidence to take that evidence of non-humanoids to the Senate. There's this pattern in what motivates the Rebel Alliance to act or not, and it kind of looks like when the non-humanoids are threatened and the non-humans are threatened by the Empire, that doesn't move the Rebel Alliance as much, and it's always been the Mon Calamari who contributed the, the majority of the heavy cruisers were the ones that realized that, yeah, they're going to blow our planet up because we're fish people and because they're a bunch of human supremacist racists. It didn't take much for all the non-human species that were members of the Alliance to realize their place in the scheme of things in the galaxy. And uh, I think that's something that's kind of gone unsaid in the, in the movies, but I think it's pretty clear that these space Nazis are human supremacists. 
Yeah, they're pretty much all human white men. In the new movies, you had obviously Finn as a stormtrooper and you had Captain Phasma. But as a general rule, it's all human white men, whereas uh, the Rebel Alliance has always been a lot more diverse, even in the original movies. I blame the new movies on neoliberalism because they're they're trying to show that on both sides there's good people and that diversity. it's diverse even on the fascist side. Yeah. And I think that's a mistake. Yeah. I, I think they should be showing that they're blonde hair, blue eyed. Yeah, yeah. And more yeah, ma- you don't more need male. diversity on the fascist side. I agree. Yeah, because I mean, the first order admiral was was a black woman. So it's like you're 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 just destroying the point here. At the point with Jedha, Scarif, and Alderaan then completely being blasted by the Death Star, ethically, short of intentionally bombing civilians. The levels of genocidal violence and death the Death Star can deal out compared to anything the Rebels could do is uh, kind of hard to argue that the Rebels are kind of going too far to stop the Empire. And I kind of got tired of those kinds of arguments over the course of Rebels, and especially in this movie where they kind of act like, oh, we're going too far and fighting the, you know, this idea that, oh, you fight the bad guys, you become too much like them. They could commit innocent genocide at the push of a button. Torture and and mass murdering civilians are two things I think you can never really justify. But basically what the struggle is over in Rogue One is over armed struggle versus political struggle. And they're at a point where armed struggle was definitely necessary. And and morally justified. Yeah. And it actually shows how frighteningly close to extinction the rebels were even before the first movie. It always struck me watching A New Hope how fucked they were as the Death Star was getting closer to zeroing in on Yavin 4. But here, you really see how desperate it was from the all the way through. Saw and his militants, they were very correct in their assessments of how dangerous their Imperial foe was. And they were mostly correct, ultimately, in most of their tactics and their insistence on not giving up the fight. But unfortunately, like many partisans and revolutionaries, they died knowing they were right, but they all got wiped out. And here, only Bail Organa, from a neutral pacifist planet, seemed willing to do something and sent Leia for Obi-Wan's help. Okay, this is a prequel done right. It improves the movie it is a prequel to. This movie also fixed and changed the context of the Death Star's kind of laughable weakness, which definitely in the first movie, I guess, overall seems like a bit of a plot hole, that this massive station has this criminally overlooked exhaust port that would lead to being a major Achilles heel to the entire massive moon-sized space station, but now we know it was intentional industrial sabotage by design, and uh, the sabotage by the main scientist who was working on it, Galen Erso, was able to resist the entire Empire and the Death Star as one person, and I thought that that was really deep, and that just showed that, that you can do, you can fight back in any way. And he found a way to fight back. You know, it changed some things by being a prequel. You know, it retconned 
that explanation for why there was a weakness, but it actually it added to the original movie rather than taking away, like some of George Lucas's additions, kind of take away the more he adds. The CGI augmented A New Hope, Tarkin and Leia missed it by that much. I guess they could have maybe used a little extra time. Maybe this was rushed, but we still get into uncanny valley territory and they look very good until they move at certain angles or speak. And I would say both of them look very photorealistic and look like the original actors at that until their lips moved, which I found very strange. So as with Marvel Comics, especially the Vader series, the ending of this movie made Vader fucking scary again. And The New Hope, improves the movie tremendously now if you watch Rogue One right before it. Now, whenever I watch A New Hope, I have to watch both movies as one long movie. And it just totally, now it works. And I would say it also, it exposes the lack of themes in the sequels as we've talked about many times. I think in comparison with the sequel trilogy being made at the same time as these kind of standalone movies, the sequels seemed uninterested in saying why the fascist First Order is bad and must be resisted, so why should there be a resistance? And uh, very few people give many explanations as to what's going on in the state of politics in the galaxy at this point in The Force Awakens. I found that very uh, problematic and very, very frustrating. The other thing was there's very few rallying speeches. That's something I always remember from a lot of movies, especially in the 80s. I think even across the, the Star Wars movies, there's always somebody making a speech or making a point. I mean, you got the best line in Revenge of the Sith. I mean, this is how democracy dies. This is how liberty dies to great applause. As Lindsay Ellis puts it, that's the one good line in the, in the prequels. But, uh... The characters in Rogue One made poignant points <laughs> about revolution and rebellion and oppression, and they were talking about how rebellions are born in hope. I mean, you didn't hear shit like that in the new sequels, you know? And Jin Erso must have given at least three, four rousing speeches at different points after she got the hope back, and she started giving some really good speeches. And uh, she was able to inspire everybody and rally everybody to go on their own as the unit Rogue One and go after those plans to the Death Star by themselves, knowing they were all likely going to fucking die and that everybody else was going to die because the Rebel Alliance wasn't going to do shit. That political nihilism of the sequels was something I found very strange. I don't know if it's just like postmodern that it just wasn't seen as serious or cool or something for the movies to be about something lofty like resisting oppression or fascism and to talk about the rebellion. This movie, Solo, and even the cartoons like Rebels and Empire, they show and speak to the oppression of the Empire and people under the Empire and the configuration of it 
But, you know, one thing I found hilarious also while watching this movie that I kept laughing when they kept coming back to it, my last thought on this, is that on the planet Scarif, they had a planet-wide shield bringing us full circle back from Spaceballs, which was spoofing A New Hope. Amazing. I mean, when, I, when I saw that, that, that uh, planetary shield, I was like, Spaceballs! <laughs> Solo, a Star Wars story, or the adventures of younger Han Solo, because he really wasn't that much... Like Indiana Jones? Yeah, he wasn't that much younger, though, than, than Harrison Ford was yeah. at the time of the first movie. George mm-hmm. Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan were working and developing Solo before the sale to Disney. I find that very interesting. Uh, so this was the last movie with some Lucas fingerprints on it, and the lack of respect for that by fans who called this a movie that nobody asked for or wanted to see, I thought was odd. I wanted to see it. (laughs) I saw Solo and I liked it very much. Alden Ehrenreich played the younger Han Solo, the cynical smuggler who joins the pirate crew. When asked how Solo differs from his appearance in other Star Wars films, Ehrenreich stated, quote, I think the main thing that's different is that Han, the Han we meet in this film is more of an idealist. He has certain dreams that he follows, and we watch how it affects him as those dreams meet new realities, realities that are harder and more challenging than he expected. Harrison Ford also met with Ehrenreich, giving him some insight and words of advice on how to approach playing Han. And I think, you know, rather than, you know, going for a straight impression, uh, he was trying to embody the character. He ended up sounding like a young Jack Nicholson. I think there was a lot of criticism in doing a, a prequel was because his whole character arc is in Star Wars, where he goes from anti-hero scoundrel to rebel good guy if he does that across there, they, they figure, well, this is a static character arc where he goes from cynical asshole to cynical asshole. But what this one did is it actually reversed it. It, it took him from being how he became the cynical guy we meet in, in the uh, Cantita. And we see how a lot of that rubbed off on him from Woody Harrelson's character, who is T- Tobias Beckett. We see how that informs his character and Han shooting first at the end was great. And uh, <laughs> Amelia Clark played Kira, Han's childhood friend and romantic interest. And again, I look at look at her character as more of a Maltese Falcon or other noir movie femme fatale, whereas the rest of them are kind of occupying a space western or pirate thing. Now Donald Glover just inhabited and just like became Billy D. Williams. He was possessed by the ghost of, of the living Billy D. Williams um, <laughs> as uh, playing Lando Calrissian. 
again, the smuggler, gambler, self-proclaimed sportsman on the rise in the galaxy's underworld. And Billy D. Williams, who portrayed the character in all previous movies and Rise, met with Glover, giving him some insight and words of advice about the character. And I think Donald Glover's amazingly smooth performance as Lando and his great capes steal the show. Yeah, I agree. And I mentioned it before. I think Lando and Han have great chemistry. There's <laughs> nothing like a fight over a vehicle to get that kind of manly sexual tension sparking. And I've been a fan of Donald Glover since Community, so mm-hmm. it's always nice seeing him get roles in nerd properties like Spider-Man and Star Wars because, I mean, he is a bit of a nerd. So, you know, it feels like payoff. Donald Glover's great. I'm a fan. There was also Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who played and did the who did the voice and did the mocap of L337, Lando's rebellious droid companion and navigator. This movie was the second movie after Rogue One that had production trouble and had an almost complete overhaul, removing directors Lord and Miller over an almost comedic tone, allegedly, and uh, reliance too much on ad-libbing. And it seems like they were going off of the same script, but they were interpreting the action differently than than written. I, I would love to see clips of that original movie, but they probably burned it all. Lawrence Kasdan and Lucasfilm were not pleased, to say the least, with what they were seeing. Uh, but the movie was almost completely done. Now, Lord and Miller believed they were hired to make a comedy film, while Lucasfilm was looking for the duo only to add a comedic touch. The common problem, I think, we are seeing across the movies under Disney's aegis is a fear to be too different and play it as safe as possible. And uh, they went through a couple director uh, choices. Uh, Rocketeer director Joe Johnston and Lawrence Castan uh, were also considered to replace the directors, though Directors Guild of America rules state that a replacement for a director may not be somebody already involved in the production. And from what I've read about that, that makes sense. Part of it is to keep executive producers from firing the director and then replacing him with like a more subordinate director like one of the screenwriters or somebody or himself and in a very bad creative precedent though Lord and Miller chose to not fight uh, their removal from the movie or fight their director's credits with guild arbitration and they opted instead to receive executive producer credits past Lucasfilm director, uh, the director of Willow, Ron Howard, became the final choice and took over directing for the remaining three and a half weeks of scheduled principal photography as well as the scheduled five weeks of reshoots. The studio had to refilm about 70% of the movie under Ron Howard. And that's why the that's the actual reason why it was such a financial failure, really, because the movie cost way too much in pre-production and production and having been mostly completed only to be reshot. 
and with an estimated production budget of at least $275 million, Solo is one of the most expensive films ever made. So it could not have ever really recuperated the budget and then made a profit. So it was just going to be a loss no matter what. So no, the boycotts did not work. But we finally get to see Sabak being played and how the Millennium Falcon was won in a game of chance against Lando. Uh, some people complain about how Han Solo got his last name from that Imperial officer at the recruitment place, uh, asking him uh, what do they call his people or what would his last name be. So he just gave him the last name Solo. I laughed my ass off in the theater when I saw that. You know, it was strange that people found issue with him getting his name so randomly. I have recent ancestors who received their first and last names quite randomly like that, whether through immigration or Ellis Island. Uh, my grandfather got his first name shortened uh, going through immigration and other people in my family, they got their whole name changed to an easier waspish name from an Italian name. So it's like, I, I think that was an inside joke from people who are uh, who come from families of immigrants and everything. One of the best jokes I thought in this movie right at the beginning was the thermal detonator bluff that he, where he used a rock and he just like with his mouth. I thought that was fucking hilarious and genius. <laughs> and that, that just that just like showed you the whole arc of past, present, and future Han Solo thinking that he would do something like that. That kind of a bluff and shows his quick thinking. Another thing that just I just loved at the spaceport was using the Imperial March within the movie as a diegetic uh, soundtrack uh, within the movie uh, for propaganda uh, to join the Imperial Navy on that hologram. And I, th I would say that was one of the most clever ways to make John Williams scores finally diegetic within the, the franchise. And, you know, the oft-heard-of Kessel looked exactly as I thought it would. And the Kessel Uprising and the Kessel Run were really good scenes. And it was very cool that Lando's rebellious robot led the Uprising. And again, as we're going to get into the queer baiting that Disney has done with this franchise in each of these movies, there is the issue of Lando's sexuality, uh, where we have, again, the writer... Jonathan Castan confirming that Lando's sexuality is more fluid and he is indeed a pansexual and it is confirmed within the movie that he and the droid are in a relationship. So you got human droid love between Lando and L337 and that seems to be about as much as we've gotten in all the movies but uh, we got to see the rebels or at least the uh, proto-rebels, not unlike uh, how you see in an early formation of the Rebellion on the show Rebels and in Rogue One. One thing I thought that was strange that Rise of the Skywalker did not pick up on after seeing this and then seeing that movie was that, you know, here this movie made such a point that Lando's dead droid was made 
the Millennium Falcon's new nav computer, but none of that was picked up in the new movie uh, when a much older Lando Calrissian returns to take back the Millennium Falcon. You would have thought like he would have like touched the panel or kissed the ship or something in, a, in a, some kind of a callback but uh, there was nothing there. The references and Easter eggs were to all eras, uh, movies, video games, books, comics, and even the really horrible fighting game that will not be named uh, is, re is referred to as the martial art that Kira was trained in by her boss in Crimson Dawn, and that crime boss's identity, much to the confusion of much of the audience uh, that missed Clone Wars and Rebels, was none other than a living Darth Maul who had survived his being cut in half and very long fall in The Phantom Menace. And he became a major villain across both those series and became a major crime boss who even conquered Mandalore. It was good to see that Ray Park was back physically as Darth Maul with Sam Witwer continuing the voice as he's done since Clone Wars. Uh, Solo was a great example, like Clone Wars, Rebels, and Resistance, where they used a lot of Easter eggs to reintroduce ideas and places and characters back into continuity and canon. And uh, most were subtle, but the Darth Maul twist was a big surprise either way. In my book, it's the first since Jedi to have the kind of adventure movie feel of the originals. It felt like it really, you know, let itself go in that respect, which was fun. Unfortunately, in mid-September 2018, Disney CEO and all-around joy killer Bob Iger stated in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter that there would be a quote-unquote slowdown in the production of Star Wars films following the underperformance of Solo, a Star Wars story at the box office. So what did you think of The Last Jedi? Yeah, The Last Jedi, uh, I think, is easily the best since Empire in the, in the Skywalker trilogies. So, you know, the, the three trilogies. And it's in a dead heat with Rogue One for Best Since Empire more broadly. You include the anthology films. And writer-director Brian Johnson is one of the better creators working in Hollywood right now. He's much more stimulating and distinctive than J.J. Abrams. So, of course, this was punished by fanboys. It's not even that subversive narratively. It is linear and follows the basic storytelling conventions of the series. It's got a nice action-y climax. I mean, watch a Goddard movie or a, a Derek Jarman movie, then come back to this. It's pretty tame. The Last Jedi, I mean, it subverts some expectations, but it's actually pretty straightforward. It seems people and by people, I mean largely straight white men in the 18 to 25 bracket, are so used to pop culture pandering that the smallest deviation will be punished. On that note, Ryan Johnson said this about fan service speaking to Radio.com. I think approaching any creative process 
with fan service would be a mistake. Even my experience as a fan, you know, if I'm coming into something, even if it's something that I think I want, if I see exactly what I think I want on the screen, it's like, oh, okay, it might make me smile and make me feel neutral about the thing, and I don't really think about it afterwards. But that's not really going to satisfy me. I want to be shocked. I want to be surprised. I want to be thrown off guard. I want to have things recontextualized. I want to be challenged as a fan. What I'm aiming for every time I sit down in a the theater is to have the experience I had with Empire Strikes Back. Something that's emotionally resonant and feels like it connects up and makes sense and really gets to the heart of what this thing is and in a way that I never could have seen coming. Yeah, Johnson's bang on here, I think. And when he says giving the audience what they think they want is unsatisfying, he could be talking about J.J. Abrams. It reminds me of a Joss Whedon line, which is don't give the audience what they want, give them what they need. Now, we have to address the Luke question because that seems to be the thing people most object to, aside from the presence of characters who aren't white and male. And I honestly think Luke's arc is the best piece of storytelling in the sequel trilogy as a whole. The previous movie actually clearly set up that he'd fled after Kylo Ren turned on him and had been hiding in some obscure corner of the galaxy. So it's weird that people were surprised he was a despairing recluse. I mean, did they just think he was afraid for his life? Or did they, you know, think that maybe he was in despair, which, you know, seems like actually a much more interesting place to take that story. Uh, And I'd actually wanted him to be a cynical motherfucker when he shows up looking like Zizek. Zizek is a Sith. Yeah, but that's beside the point. Luke's arc is essentially the story of Obi-Wan in the first one, A New Hope, whatever you call it, uh, or Yoda in Empire, the old man in hiding and despair, ultimately inspired by the young blood or the new hope. The main thing I added to that formula is that he wasn't just hiding to survive, he also questioned the Jedi mythos. So he both criticized the black and white moral framework which arguably produced both Darth Vader and Kylo Ren by by driving those people away with a kind of absolutism. Uh, And more radically, he argued that nobody is entitled to the Force. It's not a special preserve of the Jedi, it's in anything, uh, everything, and can be accessed by anyone through meditative practice, which, you know, we also touched on with Rogue One. You know, it's not just the Jedi who can access the Force. So to quote Dan on YouTube's fandom entertainment, doing his best Bernie impression, quote, no Force user should have over a billion midi-chlorians. And as, a, as an aside, Johnson's 2019 movie, Knives Out, is a pretty explicit satire of inherited wealth. So the rejection of special bloodlines is a recurring theme of his, uh, the sort of subtext 
I thought the movie was exploring is is kind of made text in this other work, which is more about real world politics. Uh, and that movie uh, also had Daniel Craig calling a very online outright kid a quote masturbating Nazi child uh, unquote, which felt like payback for the reception of Last Jedi. Uh, but back to that film, uh, Johnson presents a very long overdue critique of the Jedi's nature as basically a privileged aristocratic warrior class in decline, something like the late samurai. Perhaps they were needed once, but restoring the institution is a conservative vision. This develops one of the more interesting aspects of the prequel's underlying story, the self-defeating complacency of the Jedi, into something that's actually well executed, unlike the prequels. Maybe people were too attached to their childhood idea Mm -hmm. of Luke, uh, and they couldn't move on, uh, or maybe they were uncomfortable with the social critique, but possibly both but they're wrong and the movie is great. Also, Luke still ends up fighting Kylo Ren with his Jedi powers in full force. So it's not like he hides forever. He's been internalizing a complicated situation in his head, but then he reserves to still fight the First Order because you have to, they're fascists. And he was only half wrong. He kind of had a point about the Jedi, but giving up was no solution. All that being said, it's not a perfect movie. Uh, There are a couple of messagey bits that did make me roll my eyes a bit. The major one being Rose knocking Finn off course. And I want to distance myself here from Rogue's haters. The problem here is the hammy messaging, the writer putting words in her mouth, rather than the character herself, who's otherwise good. It's an understandable instinct on a personal level. She's protecting a comrade, and she did just lose a sister. But as a broader political statement about war, that line, quote, that's how we're going to win, not by fighting what we hate, but protecting what we love, close quote, that falls a bit short as a philosophy, as a political philosophy, in my view. Love doesn't trump hate when fascists are at your door. Or to put it another way, destroying fascist weapons is an act of love. Holdo, and by the way, Holdo is so fucking cool, but she does essentially the same thing as Finn, with the hyperdrive attack, where she goes down with the ship to save the resistance. Functionally, it's the same kind of kamikaze moves that Finn attempts. And honestly, the trolley problem is simplified if people choose to sacrifice themselves, knowing the consequences. Granted, both sequences involve an argument that flight can sometimes be tactically preferable to fight. You you have to protect what you have, uh, which is true. I mean, Holder and Leia in particular had a point there. But for one thing, it appears in the cave situation that flight is no longer an option. They're trapped in the dead end. It's not a choice between escaping and a frontal assault. Basically, Holdo and Finn both intend to sacrifice themselves to enable a retreat. So it's a choice between having the ability to retreat 
and just being wiped out. So, I mean, I got the point about overconfident flyboys, but I think that's better executed with Poe and Holdo, which was, I mean, that was very controversial, but I actually thought that part was fine uh, because Poe lacks perspective on the whole situation and he's just wrong, tactically speaking. Holdo has a better plan. And it does involve retreating, but it's but it's a better plan that preserves more of their forces. But Finn kinda has a point. Taking out the laser would help them escape. Calling that an act of hate seems extremely simplistic. And at that point they had no viable alternatives. So it ties in with the other cringe moment for me, which is the idea that war profiteers selling to both sides somehow discredits the rebels. Now, it is great that they go out of their way to diss war profiteers and wreck their casino. I'm a fan of that whole sequence. But it's kind of shitty to blame people persecuted by fascists for taking weapons where they can get them. Maybe the character who says that is supposed to be wrong, but combining it with the kind of love Trump's hate line, it feels like Johnson is gesturing towards a kind of pseudo-pacifism that bothers me. So real pacifism is non-violent civil disobedience. It's militant resistance, but not military resistance. And Hollywood has trouble understanding that concept it tends to treat pacifism as a purely moral position. It's like the various Doctor Who episodes where, after lots of pragmatic violence, they suddenly decide to be pacifists at the last minute, and then they're saved by a deus ex from the consequences of that choice. In Last Jedi's case, the, the Baltics or Crystal Foxes sort of show up to save them from the consequences of, of their, the choice they've made and the situation they're in. And it's well-intentioned, but it's kind of clumsy storytelling, I think. Real pacifism involves a sacrifice, taking the violence of the state onto your body, often with the intention of winning over observers, like uh, white moderates in the case of the US civil rights movement. And sometimes people die for non-violence. But in Hollywood, the writers can always wave a magic wand to avoid the consequences of tough choices. So based on what we've been told so far, the last of the organized resistance should have died in that cave. There was reportedly only one entrance, which is where the enemy was all lined up. There was no adequate defenses. And without Finn taking out the laser, and then without that, Fox X Machina, basically on all the information we had there, they were going to get wiped out. So much for protecting what you love. You know, I don't think Finn was trying to destroy what he hated. I thought he was trying to protect what he loved. But all that being said, the Crystal Foxes actually have some interesting historical resonances, which slightly redeem the arbitrary plot device. So an article in The Last Medievalist titled How the Last Jedi Outboxes the Outright points out that in the medieval story, the Book of John Mandeville, some demonized Jewish people uh, who are demonized by the story in the time of the Antichrist 
They follow a fox out the back of a cave to escape persecution. And in The Last Jedi, there's a kind of anti-fascist moral reversal of the story. So rather than being demonized, the characters escaping persecution are the heroes. And they escape in the same way, obviously. So if it's intentional, that's an impressively deep cut. And if it's not, I choose to read it that way anyway, because it's pretty cool. Uh, also, the aesthetic of the crystal foxes and the salt flats is, is nice for what it's worth. Yeah, you don't see mo- uh, worlds that great in the JJ movies, let's be honest. Uh, a problem I had, too, was this idea you're not allowed to portray positively someone committing propaganda by the deed to you know to sacrifice themselves militarily and everybody gets away and it's heroic because I guess that's somehow evoking kamikazes or suicide bombers or something but then you look at Rogue One everybody gave their life in that movie Mm. and look at what what they what their sacrifice did so for for it's just such mixed messages that for one or two people to to risk their lives to save more people when it's their choice to do it it's their risk to buy people time it's like what's why is there a moral quandary here i think what luke does with his force projection in buying time and creating the example he kind of creates a third way of rather than somebody putting their physical self at risk and sacrificing themselves to fight somebody or kill somebody he bought the time for everybody to escape but it was actually a very passive move that it, is a, how you do non-violence when you have a damn laser sword. Yeah, that was quite effective. I mean, he is literally, when I say taking the violence of the state, the way he's portrayed as kind of wearing that, that violence, mm-hmm. and then, of course, the fact that he's not present. But, of course, we're not all Jedi. You know, he's, he's able to do things which other people aren't able to do. Finn disobeys Poe's order, uh, which is interesting because I think maybe there's an idea that Poe has learned from the previous situation mm. and realizes they should pull out and preserve their forces and he defies that order. But then in Rogue One, as you say, they en masse defy orders and like sacrifice themselves. And this is a war, you know, like people do sacrifice themselves in war. So to suddenly say, oh, you're trying to destroy what you hate. It's a fairly arbitrary thing, and I just didn't find it convincing. I, th- I thought it was just trying to kind of basically shoehorn a message in that didn't really quite fit. Yeah. Uh, and I blame—I don't blame Rose. I blame Ryan Johnson. I think he's—he's he's generally very good, but I think I just thought that was a little bit cheesy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I agree on Rose and Finn. Uh, and had he died, he'd have had a more solid character arc. Yeah, he's just sort of there and rise. Like Rose. Yeah. I mean, at least Finn had 
any screen time, whereas Rose is basically shaved down to nothing, essentially. So Last Jedi is a stimulating and thoughtful entry in the canon, I think. There are some misfires, arguably, but nothing deserving the hate campaign from a vocal minority. And it was successful, both critically and commercially. Uh, So finally, Rise of Skywalker, what did you think of that? Well, from a financial standpoint, I think that uh, Rise of Skywalker did far worse than the maligned The Last Jedi. But anyway, Rise was a fine Star Wars movie. It was uh, very entertaining. I liked it when I saw it. I saw it in 3D. It was more than okay. It just wasn't great. It was just uh, very good, you know, and thoroughly flawed. If this was a standalone movie, I would probably give it a B- or a C for some of the overstuffing and problems with the story and the plot holes. But uh, given that this was the last of nine movies tying up the entire Skywalker saga, this was a very disappointing end to said saga, and it didn't answer very much, and very strangely introduced more secondary characters we already didn't have the time or room for, and uh, rather than having satisfactory arcs and endings for the characters that were created and introduced in the sequel trilogy, I just thought that was very strange. And yeah, tie up some of the characters carrying over from the original trilogy or the prequels too. I mean, originally this was going to be a movie focusing on on Leia and Leia's legacy, but Carrie Fisher passed away. You know, each movie was supposed to focus on each of the the legacy characters, legacy actors, and it didn't go out as as uh, planned. And I would say planned loosely, and. Let's not even get into the return of Sheev Palpatine. I mean, that was basically ad-libbed in the final script stages uh, when they were desperate for a new villain for this story. And uh, the First Order was just totally unnecessarily pushed aside rather than wrapping them up. Disney could not stick the landing, and it was mind-boggling that there was no stronger planning for the stories arcs and themes of the sequel trilogy. The Disney Plus streaming series, The Mandalorian, which was overlapping uh, with the release of the last Skywalker saga movie, ended up being far better Star Wars than this. And uh, reading about how in Rise they cut context of Palpatine's return, and then you had Lando's daughter this character who was a former First Order Stormtrooper may or may not have been her because she, you know, was the right age or whatever. That was really stupid to just throw in there and not explain. And cutting the explanation for Palpatine's return, that didn't make sense. I mean, they treated these important facts as unnecessary exposition. I mean, it was very strange structurally. And, you know, a better cliffhanger, had they known or planned ahead, would have 
ended, I think, the, the Last Jedi with Palpatine announcing to the galaxy that he is alive, and then boom, to be continued. It would have made it an even harsher Empire cliffhanger. And, you know, give you a three-hour episode nine, and, you know, it's just like, I, I just don't get it. So what, what do you think of Rise? Yeah, there's a lot that bothers me about Rise, but I'm going to start with the uh, good or okay parts. So Star Wars exists on a spectrum between anti-fascist resistance allegory and mystical ahistorical hero's journey. And I'd say the sequel trilogy and particularly this entry are firmly on the, the sort of mystical ahistorical end of that spectrum. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I just, you know, that's just an aspect of Star Wars that this plays to a lot more. Although Abrams' concept of mystical sometimes seems like an RPG fantasy quest with nonsense puzzles, like that knife. <laughs> God, don't get me started on the knife. Yeah, that was ridiculous. But there are parts that work, particularly on an aesthetic level. So I like the wet planet, uh, I like the caverns Palpatine occupies, and I like Ray's return to Luke's home on Tatooine at the end. If we take all nine movies as one big Campbell-influenced hero's journey, starting not with Anakin but with Luke and ending with Rey, the Tatooine scene is the return home at the end of the hero's journey where the heroes changed. So Rey was always basically Luke, the new hope. So it's a nice symbolic conclusion, you know, the return home changed. Yet despite this emotional closure, the epilogue said surprisingly little about the future of the Jedi. Surely the story isn't just about fighting the enemy, but the decline and possible revival of the Jedi. So if you're going to talk about not just not destroying what you hate, but preserving what you love, then shouldn't we know what happens next, what this anything about what the society will be? So, I mean, just a, a single shot of some institutionalized training would have fixed this oversight, you know. It wouldn't have really addressed some of the questions that have been raised, but it would resolve the story. <laughs> so it was weird to not see a major strand of the story addressed at all. They just seemed to not bother with that whole part of the story. But while the movie doesn't stand a lot of scrutiny, it's still a lot of fun. So with all the fanboy lore that's developed, it's, it's easy to forget the originals were family adventure movies. And I think Abrams, he does deliver on that level. I mean, I, I teared up when Chewie apparently died. It actually hit me harder than any of the human deaths. So it was a relief when that was a fake out. In real life, it was sad to see Carrie Fisher passed away. She's a, a bipolar hero of mine. But to get to the more controversial stuff, it was worrying to see the cast and crew distance themselves from Ryan Johnson in the lead up to this. And unfortunately, Abrams did confirm our worst fears and reverse everything that made The Last Jedi interesting. So it's not surprising that uh, Abrams abandoned The Last Jedi's critique of the Jedi ethos that's kind of a hard sell for a blockbuster. But it's still depressing how 
thoroughly he repudiates the previous movie and sort of goes out of his way to repudiate the previous movie. While Rian Johnson's vision may be more interesting than J.J. Abrams, it probably would have worked better if either of them, either Abrams or Johnson, or any writer-director had done all three, because without that kind of consistency, it ends up adding up to very little. So the second movie heavily revises the first, then the third movie heavily revises the second, and Abrams replaces everything that's happened so far, even his own, the things he introduced in the first movie, with thin plot devices to reach predefined, largely predictable narrative beats. We know everything that's going to happen, it happens, and the way it gets there is not really that coherent. The one retcon that works for me at all, contrary with Derek, is bringing back Palpatine. Simply because they failed to make the First Order a plausible threat. They never, they never really fleshed the First Order out. Kylo was a whiny kid throwing tantrums. Snoke was just dispatched in the second movie. Admittedly, Rian Johnson may have been a bit too edgy there. Because you need a good villain. Kylo isn't a very good villain. So you're kind of not left with very much uh, for the third movie. So and the same thing happened with Phasma. She gets killed in the second movie. They, they treated her as a, as a second coming of Boba Fett, where they had a really good actress here and they completely wasted her. I guess you could have had Hux rise and be the villain, I guess. But like there wasn't really much left. So while the Palpatine retcon was contrived, it needed more setup or any setup. It did raise the stakes effectively, and Palpatine is just kind of cool in every movie, so he is easily the best thing about the prequels. I think if that on its own had been the only major retcon, I could deal with that, but then it just felt like everything in the movie was kind of awkward and setting new things up or revising previous things to a degree that was just, yeah, excessive. It wasn't just Palpatine, it was so much else. So, I mean, Luke's appearance really bothered me. It felt like fixing something that wasn't broken. So he says to Ray that he was just afraid, and that kind of reduces his critique of the Jedi to nothing. If anything, it insults the character more than anything in the previous movie. So he was far from the first Jedi to go into hiding. It's his yeah. reasons for distancing himself that were distinctive. He wasn't afraid of being killed. He was afraid he was fighting for the wrong thing. It was a principled thing, and to say he was just afraid makes it look unprincipled, essentially. It looks like he just left his friend to die because he was scared, and that, I don't think, is what we saw in that movie. It also looks like they're saying that the the fan rage was correct about Luke's personality. It's, it's telling them that you're right, to dislike how how he was acting and this is this is your treat you know yeah your treat is to find out that your hero was a coward like uh, apparently yeah, I mean, they, they don't like it him worse, being yeah. a complex interesting character and it's a it's apparently a good retcon to say he was just scared now okay yes fear is legitimate but i find it strange that apparently it fixes it to say that he was just afraid 
rather than he actually had some very serious misgivings about the whole thing. He also says he was wrong in The Last Jedi. And that's kind of funny because it feels again like it's fixing something that wasn't broken. Because it's not really news. People seem to miss everything that happened in the last act of the movie. So Yoda, who's arguably the highest moral authority of the whole Star Wars universe, told him he was wrong. <laughs> then he changed his mind and acted on it. So this wasn't some oversight that needed addressing. And you have that moment when he very pointedly catches the lightsaber as a kind of rebuke to the previous movie. Spare me. It just felt like one big insult to the previous movie, basically, and completely unnecessary. Even worse, uh, retconning Ray's parentage uh, restored the reactionary notion of powerful bloodlines, which Johnson obviously had undermined. Not just with the parental twist, because I've seen people call that pointless subversion. But you, you have Luke's argument that nobody is extra specially entitled to the Force. And that was the point of the parental twist. She could be a child of nobody and still have a deep connection to the Force, still be a powerful warrior. So that to me is a much more empowering, powerful message that you don't have to come from a powerful bloodline to be, you know, a warrior and to, to have like a connection with the Force. So I think Johnson was right to toss the bloodlines concept in the dustbin of history, but Abrams for some reason felt the need to retrieve it and dust it off. Meanwhile, Kylo's redemption was fine in my book. I know you didn't like it, but I thought it was okay. But the kiss was still gross. You didn't have to reward his redemption with a kiss, especially after the way he'd treated her, particularly in the first movie. That was gross and unnecessary, and redemption... They doesn't... rewarded the shippers, too. Yeah, yeah. That is what it's so insulting about. about... It's, such, it's all just pandering. Like, there's so much pandering in this movie. Yeah, this pandering except the gay people. That's how it works. Yeah. And they, they backed away from having LGBT characters as well. So Oscar Isaacs uh, hinting at a Finn and Poe relationship, saying it was a possibility. Uh, and that would have been hot, by the way. Like, Finn and Poe together is, like, is hot. But there's this, uh, there was this Mary Sue article from the website, the Mary Sue, which talked about fandoms queer baiting themselves, which is basically that just because you see subtext in something, it doesn't mean it is intentional, which is fine. Like it's good to do transformative works and, and queer things. But then when they accuse creators of queer baiting, it's like, well, sometimes they are, but sometimes you've just seen something they didn't intend to put in. And that's fine, but you can't always accuse them of queer baiting if it wasn't intended. But, oh, I mean, they're doing it on Supernatural. Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. In a, a lot and, of these. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying queer baiting doesn't exist. It's just every time you slash someone, it's not necessarily queer baiting. It might just be that you're slashing that pairing. I'm just saying there's a distinction between slash and gay representation. Mm -hmm. um, they're not the same thing. Finn and Poe probably qualifies as queer baiting in that the creators were aware of it and kind of hinted at it. Uh, and I mean, Oscar Isaac doesn't qualify as a creator, but the fact that he acknowledged that in interviews and then they didn't follow through with it because there's a clear awareness on the part of the creators that that could qualify as, as queer baiting. 
And I heard they played it that way, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. And see if we get one background kiss from, as far as I know, non-speaking characters. I forgot about that, like, as soon as it happened, essentially, and it was only reading about it afterwards. I was like, oh, yeah, there was that one kiss, you know, from non-characters. That was cut from the Singaporean release, so it's kind of telling. You can cut it without any impact on the story. Yeah. And that's why, you know, what what you do is when you have movies this big and you have main characters that, that are that are queer like that, they can't cut it. Mm, exactly. And they have to put up with yeah. it. And this is the stupidity of, of this kind of marketing because they're allowing these things to be cuttable and, and these kinds of scenes to be in a way that they have no effect on the overall storyline. And... Another thing that was such an insult was not only did they not have the relationship between Finn and Poe consummated or confirmed in any way, but they made sure to go no homo in this movie and give them both rushed love interests that went nowhere. And why give them love interests if Finn already had Rose? Yeah, exactly. It's like no payoff on anything from the previous movies. Like, you've got Finn with, like, three potential love interests. You know, Ray or Poe or Rose, and none of them are paid It was more important to punish Rose. Yeah. And then you've got Rose being thrown under the bus. She's barely in the movie even removed from merchandising after the actress Kelly Marie Tran was forced off Twitter by fake nerd boys baying for blood. So that's frankly disgusting and it makes me feel a bit bad for criticizing that one cheesy line she had. Like, I'm, I'm not with the people who wanted her removed from the franchise. Yeah, there's also a graphic novel where her prominence and continued relationship with Finn was still strong and present and it really shows that in this in this tie-in lead-up comic that was supposed to take place right before the movie that it was a sudden change to sideline her in the movie and that they were working on the most recent script treatment or whatever where she was still an active member of the resistance because she went on a mission she was having feelings for Finn so the, something was changed and it's become more obvious. Yeah, which is gross. It's just it's just nonsensical and really kind of depressing. Like, it was a fun movie to watch, but the moment you start thinking about it, it's pretty grim. Yet, I mean, when things didn't go our way, you didn't see Last Jedi fans and social justice types launching some kind of mass trolling campaign, you know, maybe harassing J.J. Abrams off Twitter or out of the franchise. So despite my misgivings, I'm not going to at any of the cast and crew on Twitter with abuse. And if people on my site are doing that, I haven't seen it, but if they are, please stop. You know, obsessive hatedom is an unhealthy correlate of obsessive fandom. So please just smoke a blunt, go outside, Masturbate. Anything but harassing strangers on the internet. Seek balance and non-attachment. Or at least use that dark side energy for Nazis who actually should be harassed out of public life. But I digress. 
overall, Skywalker, it's not so much reactionary, really, as it's just empty. It, it has nothing to say. It's so busy pandering that it just doesn't have much of a story or, again, anything to say, which is pretty much what you can expect from Abrams, uh, who made two Star Trek movies despite openly declaring he doesn't care about Trek's philosophy and finds it boring. And Rise kind of follows that pattern of aesthetically pleasing mediocrity when there's so much richer storytelling happening elsewhere in the Disneyverse. He makes movies a lot like uh, movie uh, attraction rides, like at Universal Studios or something, you know? Theme rides. And they're good while you're on them, they're very entertaining, they're fun, they're like roller coasters, but when it's over, there, there was no substance. Did no one grasp that The Last Jedi was supposed to be The Empire Strikes Back of the sequel trilogy? I mean, does that show what kind of fans they are, the ones that hated it so much? Yeah, thinking about the training sequences, the whole Luke and Rey thing, again, I think is, is very interesting. And it's remarkable how much Last Jedi echoes Empire without feeling formulaic. So, you know, in both versions, the Jedi Master, so that's Yoda or Luke, uh, is in hiding on his own in an obscure location. He's reluctant to train the New Hope, so that's Luke or Rey, uh, haunted by what happened with the previous Skywalker. Uh, when he agrees to train Padawan, he encourages deep meditation rather than thoughtless action, and that's emphasised in both movies. The Padawan sort of confronts what initially is kind of their parent in a cave and then uh, it turns into their own face so they confront themselves in a cave and you know it took me re-watching Empire to, to realize that essentially the same thing happens but it's executed quite differently. Then the Padawan has a vision of something that's happening, rushes off into battle half-cocked and is shocked to find out their parentage. Although that goes a fair amount better for Rey than the end of Empire went for Luke. She comes out a bit better. So all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. Rey has both hands. Yes. I find that unfair. Yeah, yeah, she has both hands. She, does, she didn't really suffer to the degree that Luke did. Yet even though that strand of the story is, is technically one big repetition of Empire, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel formulaic the way The Force Awakens does. And I think that's partly because Johnson and, by extension, Luke in the movie is kind of contemplating that repetition and trying to find a way out. It's almost meta, so they're stuck in a formula and want out. It's time for the Jedi to end, and as one meme added, The Simpsons and The Walking Dead should probably pack it in too. Johnson is clearly a huge fan of Empire. He praises it for telling a story in an unexpected way. And he does take that subversion to a slightly trollish level. He's kind of messing with viewers for sport a bit, and it probably helps that I enjoy when directors do that. Like... I loved in the uh, Twin Peaks reboot when David Lynch had like 
10 minutes of somebody sweeping a bar. So, you know, I'm kind of primed to enjoy when people mess with the audience a bit. But again, it's actually not that edgy. You know, it's still a narratively linear action movie. But like Empire, he kind of gets at the core of the story. So Luke, as a master, may echo the narrative beats of his own master, but it's also different. So while Yoda was old, he was kind of sprightly. Luke is even grumpier, he's more exhausted, more despairing, and of course he resists training Ray for longer, although only half an hour, as the training starts half an hour into the movie, so it's actually not that long, but it's longer than Yoda, and now they've lost two wars in two generations, uh, a third war has begun, they've trained two successive supervillains, why wouldn't he be concerned about the way they're going? You know, why would he have faith in a strategy that keeps failing so utterly? He's kind of an asshole about it, but he's an asshole with a point. Ray also has a point, and she's dedicated, and her dedication is ultimately vindicated. So they're both kind of half right. The master still has a lot to learn, and his master returns to kind of give him that lesson to say, actually, you know, Ray had a point, dude. So these middle entries, uh, Empire and Last Jedi, grapple with fear and uncertainty. So to quote Bojack Horseman, Empire uses darkness as a metaphor for darkness. With Peter Shushitsky's beautiful cinematography setting an appropriate tone, look at the scene with Yoda when Luke in the X-Wing passes over him. The, the sort of the play of the light and the dark on his face and the background and then obviously Obi-Wan emerging from that darkness. It's, it's a beautiful movie. But, you know, Empire is a great movie. What's new? Uh, there's a commonality between them. So the chips are down, the fascists are winning, but the heroes also have some time to contemplate before the climactic entry. They quite literally meditate, they confront their demons, which is, is also themselves to a degree, and they begin figuring out where they stand. So, yeah, it was no rocky training montage. Uh, instead, we're kind of diving into the monk side of warrior monks, the kind of contemplation. Uh, and monks are basically academics, so of course I kind of relate to this. And again, you know, I think when you look at how the other movies don't have much to say, for the short amount of time Yoda is in this, he drops a lot of knowledge. Yeah. You know, he says that failure is practice. Yeah, yeah. Failure is, a, is, is the best teacher. And he says that she had the knowledge that the books have. Yeah, I love when Yoda vacillates between the sage and the trickster. Yeah. Because he clearly knew those books were not in yeah, there. Yeah, And I'm, I'm glad that Ray saved the books. You know, burning books is not cool. Nazis burn yeah, books. Yeah. yeah, the symbolism of it was a bit weird, burn, burning books. Like, I understand it's about breaking the tradition, but I am also glad they saved the books. And I don't think burning books is... I do not endorse burning books. I'm, I'm going to go on record as saying that. But I did think Yoda, for example, when he says page turners, they were not, I thought that was a good line. Yoda's role in that movie was great and very funny. It makes me appreciate the character in you. 
<laughs> why do people hate this movie? Like it has the best Yoda since Empire as well, I'd say. And like a good radical academic, Luke still returns to the barricades, which, you know, I, I can't underline enough. The idea that Luke in this movie was just some coward who didn't do anything is maybe based on people being shocked by the first half hour and then forgetting the rest of the movie. I prefer your reading. He was afraid he had fear about what he would do or what he had done. Yeah. That they were in the wrong. did. Yeah. Yeah. About killing yeah. Kylo. Is, yeah. That, that shows the turn back. That shows yeah. that he didn't turn to the dark yeah, side. Yeah, yeah. He, he was just being Luke. You know, Luke is a conscientious person. And he was like, okay, I nearly killed my nephew. Then nephew turned evil. I oh, know it's Darth Vader again. Like, well, it was utilitarian and it, and it actually became a self-fulfilling prophecy. He was trying to save the most, it caused the, the least amount of violence and destruction and an imbalance of the force in the galaxy by striking down one person and that he realized yeah and anyone <laughs> and he's wondering you know is the you know because of the record of the jedi is the best way to balance the force for the jedi to dissolve and it's a legitimate question have the jedi just resulted in balance being one big kind of ping pong game where it's always swinging back and forward wildly. You've kind of made the point to me that actually, uh, in like, is it Taoist philosophy balances flux? There is no equilibrium. So yes, maybe balance is a big ping pong game, but for the people on the ride... Well, there can be equilibrium, but it can also knock itself out of yeah, balance. Yeah, yeah. Point being, people have been saying for a long time that what the Jedi do, do is self-defeating and kind of nonsensical. So Luke just kind of finally brought it up, and then people sort of lay, laid into him about it. But the so, thing is, is that it's equally and opposite true about the Sith. And that's, what, that's the biggest weakness of Palpatine that he cannot see. He has a glaring blind spot that he still did not get by the time of that movie, and that's why they were able to take his ass down. Palpatine's mistake was that he believed that as a as a Sith, was he was under the mistaken belief that one side could permanently win. Whether it be the light side or the dark side, he thought that he could make the dark side eternally rule. And it just, the force does not work that way, and it will not let them work that way. And that was his biggest weakness and his oversight, and that was why he was able to be overthrown. In the same way that the Jedi had their oversight about being one-sided as well, and somehow balance equaling defeating the dark side. If you realize that, of course you're going to have a bit of an existential crisis. These middle ones, the existential crisis, Star Wars movies, Empire and Last Jedi, are definitely my favorites of their respective trilogies. The pattern doesn't hold for the prequels though. Clones middle entry was pretty ridiculous, particularly the infamous courtship scenes. I'd say Revenge of the Sith is the best of that trilogy, although it's still pretty naff mm -hmm. in places. You just can't drop that sand, can you? <laughs> yeah, that was ridiculous. <laughs> like, you, I, if yeah. someone's flirting with me 
and there's no sand anywhere nearby. I don't want them to be talking at great length about their problems with sand. It's not hot, you know. And I was like, well... You're right, you're right. And then he sort of says, well, but you are smooth or whatever. And it's like, well, I guess... I'm preferable to sand. Nice. Hey, you know what I hate? Yeah. I hate herpes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you're not like? Yeah. I really hate when, like, I can't, I can't find a charger for my cell phone. You know, it's really annoying. It really gets to me. I just hate it. But you're not like that. I did like when he cut the pear, though. Come on. Uh, and I uh, didn't like that. But, you know, she got, she got some red flags I there. Red flags. He was talking anti-democracy. Yeah, yeah. And then by the time they got back to his yeah. planet, he was talking about how he committed genocide. Yeah, I'd say committing genocide is a pretty big red flag. That was weird. That was super weird how she was just like, oh, it's, it's okay. We all have our off days. You know, it's like, seriously, Padme? You know, what's going on there? Like, she was a cool character in, like, the first one and a half movies. But I think that whole relationship kind of does a bit of damage to her character. The dialogue is just so cheesy. And throughout most of the last movie, she's so passive. She's mostly just standing around giving Anakin, like, a reason to be angsty. That, like, she's a politician. She's, like, a person with her own life. The idea that she'd just be like, oh, well, you committed genocide. That's cool. Well, the, the, the problem with the Star Wars movies is... The way George Lucas set these stories up, the simplism of of good versus evil, white and black, very little gray. I mean, the most gray character for a while was like Han Solo. So it's like this was a very Manichean universe. You know, you had the light side, the dark side, nothing in between. So for him to go back and show how a good person was corrupted and became evil... It just wasn't going to yeah. work with his writing and with his view, with that view of a moral yeah, simplism. Yeah. See, you'd have to show the compromises someone makes. And so when he does that, he just goes from zero to genocide, yeah. or he goes from angsty to genocide. Yeah. And then when he tells her about it, she, she just has a stupid re- reaction. See, all of that is the, is the fault of the writing and the lack of nuance and complexity because that complexity already isn't there for the characters to make non-complex characters go through complex motions and emotions and stuff doesn't work You, you can't make cardboard characters have serious lives and inner lives and stuff and when they've been cartoons the whole time. It all kind of falls apart philosophically with um, Obi-Wan's Only a Sith Thinks in Absolutes. When we've just seen the yeah. Jedi, like, at great length, be incredibly absolutist and, like, drive Anakin away because of that, and then he's like, Only a Sith Thinks in Absolutes, which, of course, is also an absolute statement. So it's just a very silly line on a couple of levels. Well, is it supposed to make him look stupid? Because... It's a very clever line if it's supposed to make him look like an idiot, but I don't know if that was the intention. Because if there's only good versus evil, both the good and the evil side are going to be absolutists. It's unavoidable. The prequels are the most successful and highest-budgeted self-financed independent movies. George Lucas's merchandising rights financially made those movies possible. The Jedi 
they, they are allowed to have sex and everything, but the thing is, they can't have attachment, marriage, but the Jedi are sexually active. But that neglected love is the the big weakness of the Jedi. George Lucas was clearly saying that much. And because of that, that both made him turn. And in the end, Luke's love for him made him change and kill the Emperor. And then in Rise, you have love by mom saves Ren without him doing anything to change. I think it's unearned, it's a cop-out, and it cheapens Vader. And Dark Helmet's emo son, though, is accidentally a brilliant fuck you to the fanboys as well. Yeah, I mean, it was very funny in The Force Awakens when he first took the helmet off, when he threw a tantrum, that stuff was hilarious. And I, I mean, I've said I don't really mind Kylo's redemption, like I think. It was set up enough, and like the fact that they combined forces to defeat Palpatine kind of worked. But he is obviously a cheap knockoff Vader, and yeah, that was funny in the first one, but it got boring as the movies took him more seriously. Yeah, yeah, he was like an evil cosplayer with actual force powers, basically. And now, though, thanks to the retcons of Rise of Skywalker, Vader did not kill Palpatine at the end of Return of the Jedi. When he threw him, the dude opened a wormhole while he was falling down that shaft, hence the shockwave we always saw. I repeat, Palpatine opened an emergency wormhole. Vader did not kill Palpatine now. But, like, don't you think they should have explained this? in the movie instead of requiring us to read in one of the visual dictionaries i I mean it's like that shit's canon but you had to read extra an extra book that ties in and explains everything yeah i mean they should have explained a lot of things based on the movies alone we have no idea how the first order rose so you end the original trilogy with the rebels winning start the sequel trilogy with the fascists apparently in control it's not really clear how much power they have and that gap is never really filled so i mean extended universe should flesh out the story it shouldn't be necessary to actually understand the story to to get what the fundamentals of the story are taking Mm -hmm. the movies on their own the first order and palpatine are there because it's star wars and star wars needs villains there's no explanation needed Mm-hmm. And perhaps that brazen simplicity is why the sequels work better than the continuity-obsessed prequels. But they only really needed a single line of dialogue to explain Palpatine's survival. I mean, admittedly, we're kind of being the bad kind of nerds here. Uh, pedantry is death. I don't know. I kind of feel like we're having fair questions here that are very um, realistic. And we're not asking for much. It's like, who's that guy on the screen? How did he get here? I mean, that's that's not even yeah. nitpicking at that yeah. point. Yeah, just why is he not dead is a relatively simple question after you've seen him die. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the most they gave us in there was he, he, he kind of hearkened back to the line about Darth Plagueis and about things unnatural or whatever. That was about it. And the whole political situation post-Jedi 
you got to read Chuck Wendig's uh, trilogy to find out what exactly happened after the destruction of the uh, second Death Star and that the Empire didn't completely collapse right away. And uh, Yeah, I mean, these are movies. Like, as, as movies, they should kind of stand on their own and then extended media should add to them. Shouldn't be giving you the basic building blocks of the story that should be there in the movies. And I find it really weird that they cut out the few things that made these things clear. That That's bad editing. It wasn't like they had a million info dump. They could have kept it sleek and simple. But the Sith planet for me was just too dark for me to make out that that was actually an upside down pyramid that uh, Palpatine was in. I don't know if you noticed that. No, I didn't, I didn't get that. That was an inverted pyramid. And uh, I could barely make out all the, all the Sith. Those were the Sith Eternal. And right at the end, when the, the good guys came back, they had over 14,000 good guy ships at the end and not much detail. We didn't get to see many of those ships get hero shots you know, dog fighting with anybody. So you really couldn't tell what was going on. And what was very disappointing too, is on the one hand, that was kind of creative. They recycled CG models from Clone Wars, Rebels and Resistance, and which really created a really cool design continuity across the trilogies to have all these very familiar ships pop up. But then they didn't even focus on any of them, so it was like, okay. And then the, the Sith Star Destroyer, I thought, was very disappointing. Because basically, it was the CGI model of the Star Destroyer from Rogue One, but it was scaled up like two sizes, and then they gave it like a cannon in the front and a red stripe. And it was just like, this was all very lazy design. And I've actually seen a lot of the unused designs for a lot of the Super Star Destroyers and shit that they were going to use. And they were pretty amazing. Uh, another thing I didn't catch on the first view, on the, on the, rain, on the wet planet uh, with the big fight between Kylo and Rey, was Leia made the ghost of Han appear to Kylo. I didn't get that. I'm so dense. It wasn't just like a hallucination or something. She was using the force as a conduit because she was holding the metal to put him in touch with his father. And another thing I, I am surprised people don't get and why people don't see the importance of getting rid of the bloodlines is that the, the Last Jedi opened up the Star Wars universe to have infinite sequels and prequels with all kinds of people with force powers, and nobody noticed. Not to retcon everyone having, you know, some kind of relationship to one of the characters in the previous movies. You can just have like, well, they access the force through meditative practice. That's kind of the fundamentals rather than bloodlines. There's that great question, who fucked Palpatine? No. You know, like, who, who who fucked Palpatine? And we didn't have to have that question. You didn't have to have that awkward retcon. Yeah, it's just re-cemented this thing that everyone has to know the same, like, two or three people and be related to them. Uh, in order to have any power, which is just kind of bad narratively, and it's also kind of sending some kind of dodgy messages. My problem and issues, really, with the the JJ movies uh, is that 
they're victims of fridge logic, like most of his movies. But I point out, like, Prometheus being one of the biggest examples of this, but it's not as atrocious as that movie. Fridge logic is a term from tropes.com that refers to a movie that does not hold up to scrutiny of random thinking like when you go to the fridge, like when you stop seeing the movie. I would say Prometheus wasn't even fridge logic. Like Prometheus, you're just immediately while you're watching like, what? Why would that person do that? Like, Don't touch the penis snake. Yeah, like none of it makes sense while you're watching. Whereas I'll say at least the Abrams films are at least have fridge logic and that they make sense while you're watching and then bits don't quite hang together, whereas Prometheus just didn't make any sense at any point. And something that was really bad that we've been talking about throughout all of this is the, the rise of the Alp fans. And really, none of these movies, games, and comics, and video games are fun hobbies anymore. And it's thanks to largely the fandoms and these alt nerds have taken it to a new level. Uh, we saw the rise of the alt nerds or the alt fans with Gamergate and Comicsgate. And then when Mad Max Fury Road came out, that was attacked as feminist propaganda. The hostile takeover of the Yugo Awards by MRAs, who were pissed that too many non-white males were getting science fiction and fantasy awards. And there was the Ghostbusters 2016, daring to have Ghostbusters with vaginas, The Force Awakens, and on and on. These were beta tests by Breitbart before the 2016 election and other fascists to weaponize online geeks and 4chan. There's proof now that Steve Bannon had uh, been using Breitbart resources to weaponize trolls over at 4chan before the 2016 election. And then uh, also we had all this evidence of Russian bots targeting the Rotten Tomatoes website over the uh, Last Jedi. I mean, he can't make this shit up. And so now our pop art is all now wedge politics, and they've decided that since the right has, and the religious right has largely lost the culture wars, they're trying to create a pop culture war and expand all these things and get the whole base of online trolls and nerds into right far right politics and see every advancement or bit of diversity in mainstream media as as an attack on the white male it's pretty fucked up like you had actress leslie jones from ghostbusters uh she was hacked all her pictures were put out on the web she was swarmed on twitter by an organized racist mob working with Milo the pedo. Ghostbusters 2016, if you look at their YouTube trailer back then, it was swarmed and hacked, and more people voted the, the trailer down than people who even saw the trailer. I mean, that's simple math. Uh, you have Black Panther, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel, all digitally attacked on Rotten Tomatoes to give them lower scores. And there are all these out fans on YouTube saying to this day that Captain Marvel was a bomb and Disney committed a hoax to make it appear financially successful. 
because their boycott failed, like the Fury Road boycott before it. So that's the thing to remember. They're a vocal minority of reactionaries who create the impression of a fan consensus by juking the stats and shouting a lot. And in reality, there, there are more of us, broadly conceived, you know, not just us leftists, but just people who don't necessarily have a problem with, you know, women being in movies. So, of course, there are issues where that matters a lot more than blockbuster preferences, where the fact that there's more of us than them matters a lot more. Yeah, and these uh, Russian bot attacks we, we saw were really had more to do with tests of just trying to see how to divide people because they were also using this to take both sides of the vaccine issue online to see what would happen and that was really strange results and that kind of led to in Europe and in Italy a resurgence in measles because of all the anti-vaxxer propaganda going through Facebook and stuff so th these things have uh, real results but the last Jedi harassment campaigns had consequences where these racist, sexist harassers drove Kelly Marie Tran, who played Rose, off of Twitter, and her character's role was then reduced in Rise of Skywalker. And that does not speak well. And American comic book writer, an author and screenwriter, and prestigious blogger, Chuck Wendig, wrote the flagship journey to Star Wars The Force Awakens novel, that first one was called Star Wars Aftermath, and that was published in 2015. It was the first in a trilogy of new canonical Star Wars novels, published by longtime publisher Del Rey, bridging the gap between Return of the Jedi and the new Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. The book was followed by Aftermath Life Debt in 2016, and Aftermath Empire's End in 2017. Wendig's involvement with the books ironically came after asking to write a Star Wars licensed novel on Twitter on September 4th, 2014. He was approached by Lucas Books at the New York Comic Con later that year after seeing his tweet, and they read a novel he wrote and were impressed. Aftermath was published exactly a year later in 2015 and debuted at number four on both the New York Times bestseller list and the USA Today's bestseller list. And Aftermath almost immediately invited reactionary controversy for its inclusion of a gay man as a lead character. After announcing at New York Comic Con that he would be writing a five-issue story arc exploring the legacy of Darth Vader on the galaxy, the Marvel Comics entitled Shadow of Vader, set to begin in November 2018, by October 12th, it was reported that Marvel had fired Wendig for unknown reasons. It was presumed the firing was the result of his social media posts. This resulted in the Shadow of Vader story arc being pulled from Marvel Comics' schedule. Wendig's firing came three months after Marvel's parent company, Disney, fired director James Gunn of the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 over old offensive tweets that had been resurfaced 
by organized far-right Twitter personalities looking to target liberals after Roseanne Barr was fired by Disney's ABC. Wendig was being targeted by a vocal minority within the Star Wars fandom after introducing one of the franchise's first canonically gay characters in Aftermath. His outspoken response to that pushback, calling those that complained the shitty, oppressive, totalitarian empire, end quote, and his openness about discussing politics on Twitter and his blog made him a target of the right-wing elements of the Star Wars fan base. In Wendig's own words, and this is from his tweet where he finally explained what happened and what, what had been going on since he wrote the book. Quote, to rewind a little bit, when Star Wars Aftermath came out, I assumed most know, but maybe you don't. I put some uh, elements in there, LGBT characters, that were not received well by a certain subset of fandom. That resulted in both a negative review campaign found across various Facebook groups and other worst places on the internet that began mounting the very minute the book dropped online. I was literally at a midnight release of the book, and when I got done, there were already a pile of one-star reviews piling up, which seemed strange, obviously, and scary, too. I didn't understand what was happening at the time, and as a caveat, obviously I recognize that yes, some people just don't like the book for the usual reasons, and people who hold those reasons are not to be lumped in with the more septic side of fandom, but come on, let's see the <laughs> Last Jedi reviews. I also started receiving tons of harassment. Harassment that has gone on for years. Harassment that has required me to contact local police and warn them of swatting attempts. Harassment across all corners of the internet. Here, Facebook, Reddit, YouTube. Some of it was bot stuff, obviously, or sock puppets, but some of it was pretty creepy and very personal. I didn't call a lot of it out or even highlight, but... It was there, a sort of constant background noise. Christ, for an extra special treat, go search for my name and check out the YouTube videos if you want an eye-opening gl glimpse. And I was worried, of course, because, geez, I thought I had screwed up. I worried for a time if the book was bad, but then it hit list and stayed on list for four weeks, and the next two books hit list two. And Empire's End landed even higher on the list than the first book. And privately, I was told by folks inside Lucasfilm Limited that there were no worries here. That they valued that I spoke out both speaking up for myself and for Star Wars, which has always honestly been a progressive brand and company. And it made me very proud to work for them, too, not just because, holy hell, basking in the glow of Star Wars, but because the people were great and they totally got it. And it says, hell, a lot of the people inside Lucasfilm have experienced considerable harassment. I mean, that's not news, but Kelly Marie Tran, Bueller, Bueller, 
After I did Hyperion with Marvel, they hired me to write the Force Awakens adaptation, which meant I got to work with some wonderful folks on a project that was tricky because it ended up being more of a translation of the movie than an adaptation. I know Heather received some of the worst harassment in the entire industry. I can't speak to how well Marvel did or did not protect her from it, but I know she was at the bottom of a major misery funnel from Comicsgate and their ilk, far worse than I suffered. Still, I thought things were good and I hoped to do more work with Marvel or Star Wars or a combo of the two someday. Comics isn't really my thing per se, but I felt like I was getting a handle on it. Of course, the harassment continued and it got worse again when The Last Jedi came out, which I'm sure is no surprise to anyone who's ever tweeted, hey, I really liked The Last Jedi. That's really when I started to see lots of YouTube videos and stuff about me and it was, well, it was creepy. And I'd seen other signs of people being fired for political reasons or folks like Chelsea Kane, who was yanked around and was also the subject of considerable nastiness. And then we announced Shadow of Vader just last weekend and people were excited and I thought everything was good. I was not made aware of any issues and my online self has always been my online self. So, except yeah, no. Today I got the call, I'm fired because of the negativity and the vulgarity of my tweets bring. Seriously, that that's what Mark, the editor said. It was too much politics, too much vulgarity, too much negativity on my part. Basically because I was not civil. Which, of course, is their decision to make. I'm not their boss. Turns out they're not the boss of me either. Haha. Uh -huh. I joke because otherwise I cry. My understanding over this call was that it was Marvel's decision, not a Lucasfilm decision, but I really can't confirm that. And again, the editor made the call. But it does set a troubling precedent. One we have, we've seen already, James Gunn, Jessica White and so on of folks fired because they riled up the wasp nest of asterisk gate and it seems odd to be mad that I'm mad about politics when well look around climate change kids in cages sexual harassers at the topmost tiers of power and so on a call for civility as the PA GOP candidate threatens Tom Wolf with a golf cleat stomping. I don't know, man. I, I know it hands comics gate a big win. It will embolden them, but they won. I'm out of Marvel, and I guess for now at least, out of any kind of Star Wars. Do your victory lap, I guess. Just leave me out of it. All that being said, a lot of wonderful people still work inside those institutions and story worlds and i hope you'll continue to support them and the stories they're telling to conclude this is really quite chilling and it breaks my heart i am very sad and worried for the country i live in and the world and for creative people all around the world courage to you all 
I have a dire fear this is going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. Yeah, so all that, just in the Star Wars verse, you've got Disney and Marvel throwing Ryan Johnson, Kelly Marie Tran, and Chuck Wendig under the bus to appease these reactionary trolls. It's pretty grim and kind of shows how their liberal facade is fairly superficial. Although there are some good people involved at the creative level, Disney has been a reactionary company from way back and sure they've had this woke rebrand, but I think this all kind of shows that it's not exactly something that they're going to stand up for. So let's go down to our conclusion. Well, we are in this situation because the fandom overwhelmingly became so toxic, Lucas decided to quit and sell everything. He got $4 billion from Disney and is donating most of it to charities and the humanities. So yeah, y'all taught him not to have the audacity to make the movies he wants. Yeah, although I've thrown a lot of shade on the prequels, fandom does need to chill. I mean, Jar Jar Binks isn't funny. But apparently the backlash led to the actor considering suicide, and this was largely before Twitter. Fan does mean fanatic, unfortunately. Also, leave Jake Lloyd alone too. Being the child star in episode one made his life a living hell. Let's get back to enjoying things. Not uncritically, but just without the hostility. I was cautiously optimistic about the continuation of Star Wars with the potential for new movies for the foreseeable future and greater integration across media where the books and comics are canon rather than one of six tiers of canon devolving into published fan fiction. George Lucas wisely stipulated in the sale for mega producer and friend Kathleen Kennedy to basically curate and continue the franchise and he was going to be retained as advisor and producer but he had a falling out during the pre-production jj abrams threw out michael art's script based on george lucas's outline and wrote a new script with franchise veteran lawrence castan we now know from the memoir of the current disney ceo who has aims on the white house that they completely threw out George Lucas's sequel trilogy outline, explaining Lucas's early nasty bitterness towards The Force Awakens and calling Disney white slavers on the sexual harasser Charlie Rose's old show, which now looks even worse now. The Lucasfilm story group is keeping the continuity straight across all media, but the weakness in planning that has been seen on the sequel trilogy itself revealed a shocking lack of story planning. The prequels may have sucked, but they had ideas, themes, and arcs. Even if the execution was botched by the same creative. The books, comics, some of the video games, and TV shows have been done right and show Star Wars has a lot of potential and life left in it in spite of a sequel that squandered so much. The Mandalorian showed how to keep doing Star Wars 
we have the Cassian Andor series, the Obi-Wan series to look forward to, and the movie taking place during the High Republic era, a sequel to the CGI series Rebels, and Kevin Feige's movie, and a movie by Taika Waititi. So I think with the streaming and the movies, we're in very good hands with the Star Wars content being ongoing. We have a sequel to Jedi Fallen Order, the video game in the works. Also, a Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic reimagining is in development. And we are going to enter another era of Star Wars. The mysterious multimedia project Luminous has been announced and Lucas and Jackson decided Mace Windu survived. So S Star Wars is the franchise where characters lose a hand and survive massive falls. I think Lucasfilm will be bringing Mace back in a period before the sequels era. We need more purple lightsaber. You know the prop said BMF on it? Badass, more purple lightsaber. I'm cautiously optimistic all hail baby Yoda. I have spoken. Summing up thoughts? Basically, unravel a Ryan Johnson movie and there's more to unravel. Unravel an Abrams movie and there's nothing. Despite generally enjoying the soft reboot, the overall trajectory from a fairly progressive start to throwing various people under the bus to appease bloodthirsty fascists was disappointing. Especially in a series that's supposedly all about resistance and resisting even if you're alone. And not giving in to the dark side. Yeah, uh, it just shows how thin the liberal veneer is. I think it's time to let fandom die. None of this matters. It's all made up. The world is burning, so let's destroy capitalism. If always emotion is the future. If always emotion is the future. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? We once laughed at the horseless carriage. The aeroplane, the telephone, the electric light, the vitamins, radio, and even television. And now some of us laugh in outer space. God help us in the future.